Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. We Christians worship a God who has a flair for the dramatic, unexpected, and unpredictable. How else would you describe a scheme to have the Messiah, the Lord of the world, lifted up in apparent defeat on a Roman execution stake, only to turn the tables three days later when the crucified one was resurrected in a kind of glory that had never been seen before and hasn't been seen since? That's what we'll celebrate at the end of this month with Easter because we believe that's what happened in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't get much more dramatic than that. But God's unexpected action in the world didn't start there. Long before Jesus, the Israelites were birthed through God's dramatic promise to an elderly man named Abraham and his childless wife, named Sarah. Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. So it happened that God called forth life from Sarah's barren womb, and they named the child Isaac. Time passed, And their lineage found itself in slavery under a ruthless, unnamed Pharaoh from Egypt. They were liberated by God's act of dramatic deliverance, which featured a series of plagues that bypassed the Israelites and brought calamity to the Egyptians. When they made it out of town, Moses the freedom fighter turned into Moses the choir director, and he led the people in this new song. There's a lot that's lost in translation. The text there in Exodus actually refers to those lines as a song. And you won't find that song on the iTunes top ten list, but it's loaded with meaning for God's people that has lasted throughout the generations. The people then end up wandering in the wilderness, somewhere between the lands of slavery and freedom. And they feared starvation because they had no food. But they were sustained by God's dramatic provision of wonder bread, which they called manna. They couldn't store it because it would spoil, so they had to trust that God would supply their daily bread, literally. In these founding stories of our faith, God acts in unexpected and unpredictable ways to promise, deliver, and provide. And just in case you were wondering, dramatic stories like these are told over and over in the pages of Scripture. A donkey speaks, 
Fire from heaven consumes an offering. A bush catches fire but doesn't burn up. A man survives a night in a den of lions. Another man survives days and nights in the belly of a large fish. And three men are locked in a fiery furnace but aren't burned by the flames. The thing to notice is that all these stories are top-down in their orientation. That is, God is the obvious and primary actor, and the events hinge on God's ability and willingness to counteract life as we know it. When we encounter such events, we usually call them acts of grace, or in the most extreme cases, we call them miracles. And there are some people who insist that these kinds of dramatic, top-down stories disclose God's usual mode of operation. But that view is usually countered by the gut-wrenching mystery of why God would preserve three men in the fiery furnace of Babylon, but did nothing for six million Jews in the fiery furnaces of Nazi extermination camps. And that's not even mentioning the barren women today who would like nothing more than to become mothers or the children who will not be able to sleep tonight because their hunger pains keep them awake wondering if their wonder bread will ever come. In the face of such brutal facts of life, our ancestors in the faith observed that God's dramatic acts were actually not as common as they hoped they would be. The days of our lives cannot be fully accounted for with the Bible stories of God's dramatic interventions. Instead, our lives go on with a steady dose of joy and sadness for all of us. Their world then was much the same as ours. Birth and death, love and hate, Goodness and greed, peace and war, health and sickness, faith and doubt. God's apparent absence and the experience of these ongoing regularities made room for another perspective on how God regularly acts within the world. Even though God wasn't always visible in the daily grind, they didn't assume that God was disengaged from it. Instead, the proponents of the alternative insisted that God is always attentive and active, but He goes about His business in many hidden ways. Just behind the curtain or just beneath the surface. This is the view passed down by the wisdom teachers of Israel, and it's preserved in what we call the wisdom tradition. In contrast to the top-down view, the wisdom tradition saw God working from the bottom up. They began with the understanding that God is the creator of the world, and He created the world with wisdom. The prophet Jeremiah put it like this, The Lord made the earth by His power, and He preserves it 
by his wisdom. With his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. From there they reasoned that God had created the world with such great wisdom that creation itself is endowed with the capacity to produce certain consequences that are organically related to certain actions. They said, if you do this, then that is on its way. And if you don't do this, then that won't happen. That's how the wisdom teachers in the Bible explain how God acts in the ordinary affairs of life. They reached their conclusions by patiently watching the ways that God worked in creation. And over time, they were able to recognize recurring patterns that they, and, and they discerned two basic kinds of behaviors. Those that were beneficial for the people and the neighborhood and those that weren't. And while they were at it, they also recognized two basic kinds of people. The wise and the foolish. So taken together, these observations formed the core of their message. Wise people make choices that bring long-range benefit to themselves and the community. While foolish people make choices that bring long-range trouble to themselves and the community. Their deductions are similar to what happens every February 2nd when Americans watch to see if a groundhog in Pennsylvania named Punxsutawney Phil sees his shadow. If he does, then he retreats back to his hole and we plan on six more weeks of winter weather. If he doesn't, then we assume that the cold weather will be ending very soon. That forecast isn't based on any high-tech Doppler radar system. It's based on a reliable method of watching, waiting, reflecting, and connecting the dots as the years go by. This is also the kind of analysis that we find in the book of Proverbs. For instance, Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4 says, Lazy people are soon poor. Hard workers get rich. Now we can all cite times that we've seen when that's not the case. I know lots of hard workers who can't seem to get ahead. We can all cite times when that's not the case. But it's as if they've seen it a thousand times. A guy sleeps until lunchtime and eventually has no resources of his own. Or a guy gets up with the sun and eventually has plenty of resources to support his family. Or take Proverbs 15.22. Plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. Again, it seems that the saying grew out of the many stories passed down about a man who came home empty-handed after he ran off with the idea for the next big thing. What happened? 
Or maybe it was seeing how over and over the counsel of others produced a better solution than what any individual person could have come up with by himself. Either way, the deed's consequences connection was reliable because of God's own wise ordering of creation from the beginning. We tend to think that we can beat the system if we're rich enough, if we're smart enough, if we're hidden enough. But the wisdom tradition keeps insisting that the link between actions taken and consequences received cannot be undone by any amount of money, intelligence, or secrecy. It doesn't matter who you are. Tiger Woods, a clarinet player in the high school marching band, or even Lance Armstrong, the consequences of your actions, whether good or bad, are coming. So here we are in Austin, Texas. A few days ago, you texted to the Associated Press and said, I told her to go wherever she wants meaning me, Mm -hmm. and I'll answer the questions directly, honestly, and candidly. That's all I can say. Those are your words. Those are my words. When we first met a week ago today, we agreed that there would be no holes barred and there would be no conditions on this interview and that this would be an open field. I think that's best for both of us. I I agree. (laughs) So here we go. Open field. So let's start with the questions that people around the world have been waiting for you to answer. And for now, I'd just like a yes or no. Okay. Okay? This whole conversation, we have a lot of time, will be about the details. Yes or no, did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. Yes or no, was one of those banned substances EPO? Yes. Did you ever blood dope or use blood transfusions to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. Did you ever use any other banned substances like testosterone, uh, cortisone, or human growth hormone? Yes. Yes or no? In all seven of your Tour de France victories, did you ever take banned substances or blood dope? Yes. Now pay attention, because here is where we meet Sophia. When the Old Testament was originally compiled and written down, it was done in Hebrew. Later, between the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, it was translated into a Greek version known as the Septuagint. This Little historical fact is what brought Sophia to life in the Israelite imagination. Here's what happened. The Hebrew word for wisdom is hachma. It'll be up there in a second. There it is. That was it. They're playing with me. All right. All right. It's going haywire. The Hebrew word for wisdom is hachma. All right, sounds like hocking something up. All right, not as bad as German, which I learned in high school, but close. So, in the Hebrew version of the text, 
Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 reads this, Hakma shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. But the Septuagint uses the Greek word for wisdom, which is Sophia. Now let's read that verse again and see if it strikes us differently. Sophia shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. Hakma, Sophia. I'd say it sounds a little different. And given that wisdom was expressed as a feminine noun, go figure, fellas. I don't know what to mean by that. It, wisdom is a feminine noun, and wisdom was highly desirable, and so it's not that hard to see how wisdom was quickly personified into the figure of Sophia, the playful, elusive, intriguing, helpful partner of God. So in the Old Testament and in the later apocryphal books, Sophia, which simply means wisdom, becomes Sophia, the personality and voice of God's wisdom at work throughout creation. The clearest passage of this sort is in Proverbs chapter 8, where Sophia says, The Lord formed me from the beginning, before He created anything else. I was the architect at His side. I was His constant delight, rejoicing always in His presence. And that's not the only passage. Sophia is featured throughout Proverbs 1-9. through Now I have to mention this, you have to hear this. When I speak of Sophia, it's this personification of God's wisdom that I'm talking about. If you Google this, you'll see, and I know all about, the comparisons between Sophia and the goddesses of the ancient Near East, or Sophia as the divine mother of humanity, what those connections fail to see is that Sophia was not a spin-off from a foreign deity, and she was more than a clever wordplay. She was a personification of God's own wise activity in the world. And here's where she came into play. She played the role of disrupting the connections between deeds and consequences. By themselves, those connections could become a bit too rigid, too firm, too mechanical, too predictable. Case in point, just look at how Job's friends respond to his suffering. You remember the story? What did you do? Nothing. Just admit it. You're suffering, so you must have done something. Deeds have consequences. They're firm. They're mechanical. They're predictable. What'd you do? Taken to the extreme, the bottom-up perspective could lead a person to stop expecting God to act in dramatic ways at all. Fortunately, Sophia showed up, broke into the closed system, 
and created space for the grace of God to emerge in new and surprising ways. Even though our plotting and planning can be useful, there are limits to what it can accomplish. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So in the same way that our complex lives can't be reduced to a Bible story of dramatic intervention, Sophia reminds us that neither can they be reduced to an automated system without room for the wonder of God's grace or the freedom of God's sovereignty. So how do we respond when it doesn't seem like God is present and active in our lives? How do we respond when it seems like God is asleep? I think we must affirm that God is free to work from the top down in any situation He chooses. But, we should also admit that through no particular fault of our own, many of us haven't had the opportunity to see or experience that kind of dramatic, miraculous action. And therefore, just like our ancient ancestors in the faith, we are left with a choice. We can believe that God isn't really there. A lot of people believe that. We can believe that God is there, but doesn't care. A lot of people believe that. Or we can believe that God is working from the ground up and pray for God to work also from the top down. And I think that last one is the best option. And I think it's also the biblical option. And so imagine Sophia calling out to you as you sit here. She invites you to come and sit and share a meal at her table. That's the scene, Proverbs 9. It's right there. She beckons you to inquire, to listen and respond to her guidance. Ultimately, the wisdom teachers offer us a vision of life in which our choices place us on one of two paths. The path of wisdom or the path of folly. Every choice that we make in the present converges with the choices that we made in the past and they form a future that is perfectly aligned with the sum total of all those choices. But God, in His freedom and grace, is able to take even the worst of decisions and bring good out of those decisions. That's what Sophia is all about. Sophia reminds us that God is never truly absent. Outcomes are never truly final. And hope is never truly lost.
All we can do then at any given moment is seek Sophia, consider the consequences, choose wisely, and trust God with the future. Let's pray. God, according to Your grace, hear our prayers. Some of us need You to work so powerfully in a situation that we're facing that it can be called nothing less than a miracle. We beg of You, God, rise up and act. Counteract life as we know it. Make a way where there seems to be no way. I know that's the prayer of someone in this room tonight. You can do it, God, and we ask You, we beg of You to do it. But even if You remain silent, we choose faith because You are the Lord our God, the Lord alone. In Your wisdom, You created this world. In Your wisdom, You created our lives. And so we trust in Your promises and we will live by faith, not by sight. Give us the courage and strength to choose wisely. And in all things, we will give You the praise, honor, and glory You deserve. In Jesus' name. Amen.